friends, welcome to another episode of the 10 Laws Podcast with East Forest. I'm Mr. Forrest. Welcome. Welcome back. Uh, I have been at the Tree Fort Music Fest with Rada. It's one of the best, it's probably really the best festival in Idaho all year long. And it's one of our favorites, but it's been a cold one, that's for sure. So we're just uh, seeing all sorts of amazing artists and I'll be playing here. Well, when you hear this, I will have played here uh, on Sunday and also accompanied Rada for Yoga Fort. Um, but it's been fun. It's been fun. And I'll be heading down to Southern Utah soon to get back into that landscape after having been away all winter. So I'm very, very much looking forward to getting back into some deep nature. This week, I have an incredible conversation uh, with two amazing women, Ivy Ross and Susan Magsamen. And they wrote a book called Your Brain on Art that's out on Penguin Random House. And it's a subject that I'm already super interested in about creativity, but most specifically in this book, all sorts of amazing evidence and research about what that is actually doing to our bodies and our brains. And in summation, how incredibly beneficial that is for human beings. So all sorts of really amazing nuggets here that some of it's truly uh, incredible. So I'm confident you're going to enjoy this conversation. Uh, Susan is the founder and director of the International Arts Mind Lab, Center for Applied Neuroaesthetics at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Uh, She's a faculty member there. And Ivy, I've known for a long time, is the vice president of design for hardware product at Google. And both of these women, very high level super deep knowledge and Ivy's someone I've wanted to get on the podcast for a very long time because I mean man I met her for a Google event over 10 years ago I played at like a Christmas party (laughs) and we became fast friends and through Ivy I met Lorraine Weiss who's been on the podcast and played on the Ram Dass album uh, the saxophonist Uh, so all sorts of webs and weavings of connection but I'm overjoyed that we finally had an opportunity to get both her and Susan on the show to talk about, you know, this amazing subject. Uh, coming up, coming up, I'm going to be at Bottle Rock, which is a festival in Napa Valley, California. I'm pretty sure I'm playing on Saturday, May 27th. I might be first in the day. So later in the day, it's looking like Lizzo and Duran Duran. So it's quite a day of music. And Mysteries Forest here. It's going to be kicking things off that day. The Esalen Retreat in Big Sur later around the July 4th weekend looks like it's sold out, but we are looking to add one in December, so stay tuned on that mid-December. And we're exploring some options for other retreats here and there. We're also potentially looking at a New York concert date in July. Uh, So more to come. And all that stuff, including things like the event in Poland in August and the event at the Ramdas Retreat in North Carolina, that's also in late August. All that stuff is up at eastforest.org, and that's where you can also check out merch and all that kind of stuff. I thank you so much for the support in any way that you give it. It means the world to me, and it also just helps keep this thing rolling, just like the folks that support us through our council on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash eastforest. Great way to support the podcast. Great way to support the whole project in general. Lots of different tiers. If you have lots of extra funds you want to give or only a couple bucks a month, that's a great place to do it. Uh, Check it out. Patreon.com slash eastforest. And lastly, if you're not on our newsletter, Get on it, but we shared in the last newsletter the recording from the South by Southwest panel that I did with Numinous about music and medicine and music as therapy and the psychedelic landscape. Uh, They put up the audio from that whole full talk, and that's over on the South by website. We also put that, as I said, in our our newsletter, so I'm I'm sure a lot of you weren't there, and maybe you'd like to hear it with uh, myself and Charlotte James and Numinous and Reed yeah, we actually had a really great conversation. And so some fun things, including a little five-minute meditation that I guided to drop things in. And we released a what we call a mini-documentary about the Burren album. I had some footage from when we were recording it in County Clare, Western Ireland, and Peter Broderick and I 
uh, we knew it was feeling special, but I'm glad I got some footage. And we put a five-minute little documentary about that process. And you can see that on YouTube. Uh, my channel is youtube.com slash Music. I think we put it up on Instagram, too, and places like that. And it's just a fun behind-the-scenes look. I hope you are enjoying the Burn album. At the end of this podcast, I'll play another track from that called Slan, which I believe means goodbye in, like, Gaelic or Celtic. Peter helped me with that one. It was, uh, it was the very last song we recorded uh, as I walked out the door. And as I said before, that whole record's crazy because every song you hear is every song we recorded, but not just that, in the order that we played them and recorded them and developed them. So I've never done anything like that, and everything's ever happened like that, nor was it the plan. Just made it feel like quite a happening. Okay, let's dive into this conversation with our new friends and old friends, Ivy Ross and Susan Magzana. Thank you both for taking the time to come on the show. When I heard about this book, I was like, this is right up my alley. So thank you. Thank you, Ivy, Susan. Nice to see you both. Good to see you again. So we realized that we all interacted several years ago with a project that wove around neuroesthetics. And I thought it was so fascinating at the time. I still do. But I think a great place to start is just to d- define a little bit what that means. But let's first start, if you could each just introduce yourselves, just very briefly, just say who you are and, and what your, your background is, and then we'll just dive into this. Okay, I'll start. <clears throat> I am uh, Ivy Ross, who has, wow, sort of a cough right now. I am uh, currently, the my day job is the Vice President of Design for uh, all of hardware for Google, but I've been an artist. I played the drums. I'm a child of wonder. I've been studying music and frequency. So I have many uh, interests and indulgences. Yes. Um, but beauty and design and music, a, a huge piece of it. Mm, thank you. Susan. That was beautiful. Um, I'm Susan Mag Salmon, and I am the director of the International Arts and Mind Lab at Johns Hopkins University. And I'm also the co-director of the NeuroArts Blueprint, which is a collaboration between my lab and Aspen Institute. And um, I am someone who has always been really curious about the way of the world works. And from the time I was very little, was very interested in um, being in nature and really being absorbed around that. Um, I grew up in a family of makers. Um, my mother and grandmother and sisters are all um, knitters and crocheters and quilters and sewers. And <laughs> my sister's a painter. My mother was a poet. And so I've always been surrounded by um, people that are making and doing. And um, and so uh, I was interested in why that happens and how that happens. Yeah. Well, so we spoke about how this book is talking a lot about neuroesthetics and neuroarts, which is a really cool sounding words. Um, but they kind of, in some ways, self-explain themselves. But I'm sure most people are like, wait a minute, we don't what's the connection here between the two of you are sort of an embodiment of it too, like design and science and how these things interact. Um, maybe like describing the project that we all sort of cross paths on, would that be sort of a, a good way as an example to describe what we mean by neuroesthetics or what we're going to get into? Yeah, sure. In fact, it was really the first time that we know of that this a project like this was exposed to the general public that yeah. um, was able to explain neuroesthetics in a um, physical way. So what we did is Salone in Milan happens once a year and Google is kind enough to support the Google Design Studio to come forward as a thought leader and share different experiences with the public, about 400,000 people from all over the world. And so Susan and I had recently met prior to this, and I kind of said, wow, wouldn't it be amazing if we could have people experience how their body physiology changes based on aesthetics? And 
aesthetics being all those things that alive in our senses. So sound, touch, smell, temperature, color, texture. Um, and so we figured out how to do this would be to have, we worked with our architect friend, Suchi, who created three different environments, the same living room, dining room setting, but with each room having a different set of aesthetics that Susan and her team made kind of a grid of. Um, and in fact, we looked for what we thought was the expert in each area. We reached out to you, East Forest. I had turned Susan on to your music to say, we want to have consistency in all these rooms, but a different flavor so that people's bodies were feeling different as they walked from room to room. And then working with um, Google and our technicians, we developed a band that one wore with sensors that had an algorithm based on different um, physiological changes, you know, body temperature, et cetera, to come up with the ideal when your body is the most at ease, or we could say the least stressed, the most at home, you know, what might that algorithm look like? And then we had people put the band on, spend five minutes in each of these different environments with different sound, color, light, furniture, music, um, no talking, no photography, just being. That's why it was called a space for being. We actually invited people to touch the art, um, explore. And then they went through a palette cleanser, a room that was gray foam that <laughs> my mind stripped people of all their sensory systems before they entered room number two. And um, then at the end, and I'll have Susan explain what we found, but at the end, people took off their band and gave it to a band tender who then was able to read, download the information. And in a beautiful way, it almost looked like a ink blot, beautiful drawing, it showed everyone in each room how their physiology was being. <laughs> um, and we looked for the room in which their physiology was the most at ease and then was able to hand the person a little printout of the image of their, bo of their body's experience, as well as a list of the kinds of things that were in the room. So Susan, maybe explain what we found, so which, was, cool. which was, thank God, what we had hoped we would find in terms of the, the brain and the body. Is there a connection? Yeah. Did it? <laughs> yeah. Does it influence us? And can you actually see that influence in data? It, it, it was really extraordinary. You know, in science, they call that a hypothesis, right? What was our yeah. hypothesis? And we, yeah. we really thought that people would have a salient experience and a, something that was meaningful to them. Uh, but what was interesting is uh, about a third of the folks that came through could identify what room they felt most at ease in. Then the mm. other folks didn't kind of get it right, right? They, they thought what, what the room was they were going to feel most at ease is, but their bodies were saying something different. And I think what's really interesting about that is that um, we sometimes think we know how we feel, but in fact, we're not connected to our bodies and to our emotions and, 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 and what physiologically is really happening. So a lot of the people were really surprised by the answer, but also then started to kind of go, oh yeah, I, you know, I was really, I did feel really calm there. I did love that scent. I did love that sound. And, and I think it really opened up people's awareness about the connection between cognition and feeling. And I think that's what we really hoped would happen, that people would have this um, insight into their own beings. And as a result, many people came through and said, I will not see the world in the same way again. I, I, I want to pay attention. I want to sort of feel this as opposed to think my way through. So that was a real achievement for us. Yeah. Wow. And I think most people, you know, we believe, you know, don't think of themselves as embodied beings that their body is feeling all the time because we've yeah. had such emphasis on the cognitive mind. And I think you often walk into a space or hear a piece of music and your mind goes, I should like that. You know, I saw that 
couch in a magazine, but your body is not resonating with it. And so it was interesting because a lot of the press asked afterwards, of course, oh, is Google going to make a band that people are going to walk around wearing? And I said, oh, God, no, I hope we don't get to a place where you have to wear a band to tell you how you're feeling. I said, this was really an exercise to bring an awareness to people that we're feeling all the time and that that we are, as Jill Bolte-Taylor has said, we are feeling beings that think, not thinking beings that feel. Yeah, and I would think we, we, we probably get that flipped around these days. I mean, isn't that wild that yeah. like we think we like something and, and we sort of learn uh, what is actually quite natural, our somatic response to space and the world. And I mean... You both are perfect people to talk about this. I mean, don't you think it is kind of strange that we're sort of taught what to like in a way through um, everything that's sold to us, essentially? And we we are taught what our taste is in a way, but we have this sort of natural response that maybe we're more and more out of touch with. But I'm sort of understanding you went so deep to it in like this whole book about this is such a natural process, but not only that, by cultivating the process, uh, it's actually showing how much wellness and well-being and healing can come out of keeping alive our connection to aesthetics, to art, to creativity. It's a a birthright. You know, I mean, it's an evolutionary uh, phenomena that we feel our way through, right? Our senses really inform our bodies and they help us to, to be instinctive and to act on those. And I think, uh, you know, Ivy often says that we become so transactional, not transformative. And so we move through with these kind of signals from, it could be commercialization or, uh, external mythologies that tell us what we like and what we don't like, what the color of the year is and all of these things, what the fashion (laughs) is, and we don't feel them. And so we're not feeling whole. We're not feeling ourselves. We're not in our bodies. We're really transacting. And I think when you start to feel and have meaning and a sense of, of what you value, you're more alive, you flourish. And there is a chapter in the book about flourishing and it's around awe and wonder and curiosity and all of those things that make us feel whole. And so that, that exhibit, I think really lit a fire for us in a really extraordinary way that we have agency we can decide we, if we listen to our bodies, we can make decisions that are in our and our individual interests, but also in society's best interest. So it's, you know, individual to community is another message that's super important. Yeah. And I didn't, you know, you always walk around thinking the world thinks the way you do until you learn that's not the case. But I, you know, both of us kind of walk around what we've now called this aesthetic mindset, because in this state of wonder and looking at everything, sensing it, smelling it, um, listening to it, and I hadn't realized till I met Susan how that natural instinct of mine is actually keeping me incredibly healthy and happy. Um, And so that's what it's actually quite simple when you think about it. But we've been optimizing for productivity, I think, since the Industrial Revolution. And we've pushed some of the arts aside as second class citizen. But there's a reason why. And we even went back in the book and interviewed indigenous tribes people. Um, about, you know, they didn't even have a word called art. That was their mm-hmm. culture, singing, dancing, mm-hmm. making sound, it's graphics. Living. That yeah. was, the, yeah, they didn't have yeah. to separate it. That's life. That, that yeah. was how life was. And so somehow we've gotten really far um, mm-hmm. from that. And, you know, you brought up something after we finished this book, it was like, wow, you know, we really have to start over again with, even teaching kids from the very early days how to feel and to express themselves so that they they are always walking around in this understanding that they're feeling beings first and not and and schools don't do that it go, it's really quite the opposite you know they teach you get smart by memorizing things and learning things yeah you had a bit in there about um like standardized tests 
filling in bubbles versus a different kind of learning. And I so resonated for me because I did not do well in standardized tests. And I think that's in the same area we're talking about how typically in third grade, you're told you're not gifted. I was told I wasn't gifted, you know, and they had a gifted program or whatever, where kids could do like creative things. It's wild to me that this is how the school worked. And other kids, well, you're not gifted, so you won't do the fun, creative things. And Hey, I was gifted. I just, that wasn't, no one, I just didn't test well. You know, it's like, I, that my brain just didn't work that way. And it's, it's, I think what's cool is like, if you get more science to sh- actually show so many things you're showing in here, maybe then there's a glimmer that other people could get behind it and stop seeing the arts as like an afterthought and it's see totally it as integral. True. It's totally true. You know, education systems are not the same as learning. And we learn through highly immersive sensorial experiences. I mean, we know that people that practice music um, actually increase brain mass. And that means they have more synapses, which is mostly a a hugely important thing for building neuroplasticity. So what, and that's learning, you know, that's learning and memory. So we, we have so much data now and growing all the time about different art forms and how different art forms help build executive function, collaboration, social, emotional learning, yet we see it as sort of a, uh, an enrichment as opposed to what really fuels and is the catalyst for how we live and learn and grow. And I think we're going to see that more and more. California Proposition 28 is a really good beginning to bring the arts back into schools in a, in a more yeah. meaningful way. Uh, but we learn across the lifespan, right? So if we're, if we're not honoring these aesthetic mindsets and practices and in all of the ways that we move throughout our life, if, you know, whether you're healthy or, or whether you have some kind of physical or mental health issue, uh, you're not going to be, um, you're, you're, we call, talk about as amplifying human potential, right? You're not going to amplify and live to your fullest. And that's, that's really what the book's about is how to do that. Absolutely. Uh, you know, hope is not lost. Cause look, I'll, I'll tell you for myself, I feel like I didn't really start becoming a full human being until after school. And I and it happens to align with I started writing my own music in college. Mm-hmm. I didn't even play. I did choirs and bands. Like I played music I was told and I enjoyed it as a kid. Loved it. But someone taught me how to like write music on a piano and I, then I just took off. And that was late mm-hmm. in life. And I always felt like, I don't know, I felt like I got smarter as an adult. And I'm like, I'm sure it was the music. It's just playing music all the time, writing it improvising too especially that you know that whole section of the different parts of your brain from when you're uh, performing uh, written music versus improvisation I, I I felt I feel that and I know what you're talking about so I'm wondering do you think creativity in a sense we could view it almost like a form of calisthenics exercises like as vital to like mental health and physical oh, health for sure yeah our whole um, we hope that we could create a movement for people to really understand the value the arts have and that we adopt it like we have exercise, you know, 20 yeah. minutes a day of arting, you know, either making art, some form of art, expressing yourself or even receiving it. I mean, the great thing is, mm. and this is what happens. People shut us down like they did you and said, you're not talented. And so people just don't ever do an art activity again. Totally. You know, they don't sing, they don't hum, they don't draw. I mean, I mean, and now all those things, you know, our hands were slapped in schools for doodling. And now it turns out that's great for memory and focus. Um, so part of it is we have to take the judgment out so that people are free to express themselves and either do an art or receive, be the receiver of one of the arts. And I have to add there that you don't have to be good at it to have great benefit. We've also told people, right, like if you're not good at it, you shouldn't do it. I can't sing. I can't dance. I you can't play a sing. Musical you instrument. can't dance. Like I know, I know, you know I know, I, mean? I know. But my husband <laughs> would tell you differently. But I have to say, I get so much amazing joy out of singing my heart out. And, you know, and, and, and I think we, we tell people that that's not a good thing to do. But in fact, you know, you can't do it if you're not good at it. And so, as Ivy said, doodling or, you know, coloring, 
um, writing bad poetry, if you want to call it. I mean, I think the more you do it, the more you start to build this muscle of joy. And um, and there's, there's physiological, neurobiological changes that happen in us uh, that you can't um, you can't tie to being a great musician or a great writer. Uh, so I think that's important too. And there's things we learned throughout writing this book and talking to folks that's counterintuitive that yeah. actually when you have a migraine headache, you should get up and dance. I used to get them and I used to lie there with the cold cloth on my forehead. And little did I know if I danced, that would actually help my headache or, you know, dancing for Parkinson's. I mean, it, it, someone who has Parkinson's disease. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. so we really have to change the way we're thinking about some of these activities. Virtual yeah. reality for pain. I mean, th- would you ever think that watching a snowman on a or a penguin sliding down a slide would distract you so that when someone's changing your bandages from a, as a as a burn victim, you're not feeling the kind of intense pain that you're feeling? I mean, there's so many interesting counterintuitive things that we're learning about the arts all the time. Yeah, what was the Kurt Vonnegut line about create creating something and I, I think that really nails it because it is you have to really put a pin in this point that it's not about how good, quote unquote, whatever you're making is it's about the creation itself. Remember like free writing from the artist way that was like really. Oh, sure. Yeah. Julia I mean, that's, Cameron, that's a perfect right? example. Yeah. Right. Well, of like you literally throw away or the pages it doesn't even matter. It's the act of doing it is uh, is a vitamin of sorts. Yeah. And I know. Yeah. Yeah, expressing yourself. I mean, what it came down to, we spoke to a lot of people in terms of alleviating trauma. And a lot of it had to do with, you know, we've been told to suppress trauma or we don't even realize we're suppressing it because we all have micro traumas, but we're not told to express ourselves all the time. But, um, you know, there's a great example in the book, a a group called Art to Ashes, where they were teaching um, frontline firemen to paint and do arts as soon as they came out of the trauma of the fire. And they found that they didn't take their problems home with them because in the moment they used that art form to express what they had just experienced and they did not suppress it. So it's really creating a world where we're all fearless about expressing ourselves through whatever modality it is would be super healthy. Right, Susan? Yeah. No, it's really true. I think creativity, um, I've mentioned that a lot of people, one of the through lines was this idea about uh, self-expression or creative expression in all the different ways that we do that. So I mentioned, you know, handcrafts. That was my one of the things that my family did. Ivy's talked about sound. We each have our own unique ways that we express ourselves. You know, for you, it's writing and music. Um, for, for, for me, it may be, um, you know, creating something that's um, collage, which is something I really love to do. But we learn about ourselves and who we are through it. And we also are able to share that with others. And I think sometimes these words around um, uh, performance and creativity, uh, we sometimes get lost in those where we're, what we're really trying to do is share ourselves and know the other. Um, and then you dig deeper into mm-hmm. the biology of that. And you start to see that it is part of our DNA. It's part of how we're, it is how we're wired, yet we're, we're, we're asked over and over again not to bring that forward. Well, Susan, what are the, some of the differences you might have found between receiving art and making art? So, um, well, let me... Or are they not, talk- or is it the same in a sense, like it produces a similar results? Yeah, no, what I was going to say is sort of to step back just a little bit. Um, when you think about sort of making and beholding, um, they are, they are different. They're very different act. They're very different acts. Um, and the, the, the way that, but the, a lot of the neurochemicals are, are similar. So when you are making something, oftentimes, um, cortisol is lowering, being lowered. Um, and that's, and that can be in as little as 25 to 45 minutes, cortisol is lowering. So you're really coming back to homeostasis, regardless of what you're doing, whether that's cooking or, or creating a piece of visual art or something like that. Um, When you're um, also making things, often dopamine and serotonin are being released, creating more uh, 
synaptic transmission and more neuroplasticity. Um, and that's really extraordinary. So you have agency in being able to make those things and there's a real sense of, of reward. So you're, you want to do it again and again. When you're beholding, oftentimes you have similar kinds of neurotransmitters or hormones that are, are sort of coming forward. Um, an interesting example is a lot of times when um, moms are singing with their babies, oxytocin is released. So it's this, they call oxytocin the love hormone. So it's, yeah. a, it's a hormone that, you know, binds us and brings us together. That also happens when you're at a concert and you're beholding and you yeah. all are in that same sort of kind of state of of wonder or, or state of awe. And so I think that there are different purposes. Also, different art forms are really helpful for different kinds of um, situations as a maker and a beholder. Ivy mentioned Parkinson's. We know that dance is really helpful for people with gait and motor issues and stroke patients um, so that they're really able to help regulate their gait and their, and their movement. And and that's because dopamine is uh, reduced when you have Parkinson's. And dance is not increasing dopamine in that case. It's actually relying on different parts of the brain to to sort of move into gear. And it's it's most likely serotonin and other neurotransmitters are actually activated when you're dancing for Parkinson's. So, um, you know, we think of these art experiences as uh, activating multiple neural pathways and mechanisms within the brain, sometimes simultaneously and sometimes separately, depending upon what's happening. And there's like a neuroplasticity there and regenesis and growth. And I mean, it's sort of new things happening in your brain. It's not just like a pleasurable activity. You're saying it's actually like... Yeah. No, the thing I find the most amazing is with neuroplasticity, the fact that our brain is constantly changing and growing, that it's super important to put ourselves in these new situations, being confronted with a piece of art or something we haven't seen before and standing in front of it, or being immersed in a immersive experience where there's sound, light, color. I mean, that's all super good for our brain to have these different new experiences to keep our brain growing and mm. making new connections. So I know in some places, I think in Canada and London doctors are literally writing prescriptions now for patients to go to museums because their brain needs to be exposed to new things that um, put them in these states of awe and wonder and mm. change their brain, literally change their brain. Um, you know, I also think, and we write about in the book in the last chapter called The Art of the Future. And, you know, we're not, we're starting to do this already, not just look at paintings, but walk into paintings. You know, and that's because I think we're craving the multi-sensory nature of that experience, which is new for us to to be able to walk into a painting versus just viewing it. And we feel alive because we feel, you know, it's a new sensation. So, um, you know, the, all the things that I think I used to do in the 60s and 70s, I now realize why that generation was kind of we used to call them happenings or we, you know, try and yeah. experiment and do different things and have different experiences. It was actually good for us. It was, it was, it make, you know, it was not just did it make you feel alive, but it was, that was coming because of your physiology was changing in the moment. Mm. And that's what's interesting about that too, is that, you know, what Ivy might've done in the sixties and seventies and what you might've found pleasurable or, could it could be the same and could be different because we're so wired based on our life experiences and our DNA and the way our brains decide through something called the saliency network and which is the default mode network sort of sits within that space of what we each think is beautiful, what we each think is important, what we think really gives us meaning. And I think that's another lens to this work is that um, we all seek out our own individual um, experiences that change our bodies and our brains. And culture is also a huge piece of that. So different cultures have different kinds of uh, ways that may be more salient based on life experiences and, and, and what people know and where they come from. And I think honoring those differences and, and also then seeing where the overlaps and the sort of universal truths are in that um, is something that we're starting to understand more about also. 
Do you think that nature is a common thread, though, to the human experience if you go back through our lineage and that in some ways do you think this need or this bereftment we have of our connection to creativity is a reaction to technology and the deepening of our relationship to technology? Well, I, you know, I think we are in some ways, um, and we interviewed uh, E.O. Wilson before he passed away for the book, and he said that, was it, 99.8% of humanity's time on Earth has been in nature. Like we've only yeah. been out of yeah. nature for like 0.8%. And this is a master experiment and it's failing to some extent, <laughs> right? And My so, whole life. No. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, like we, because this is new for us as a human species to not be so much in nature. And so nature is the most healing and the most neuroesthetic place there is because it has sound, texture, color, light, temperature, everything we talk about. And we came from there. So I think that's why we're craving it. Um, I think, and I, I believe in it's not either or, it's both and, but I think there's a tension of opposites. You know, the more technology driven we get, which I believe, you know, I'm into technology that amplifies our humanity, doesn't take us out of it. Like we could never have been together like this if we didn't have certain technology. Right. On the other hand, we need to be accountable for, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm look I'm sitting here at these amazing trees and I'm going to go for a walk after I do this, you know, podcast. So I think um, nature is extraordinary. It is our true nature and nature is the most sensorial, the most neuroesthetic place. And it has a lot to teach us. And it's interesting too, that architects and designers are bringing nature in, they're bringing the outdoors in. So biophilic design, you're seeing that show up everywhere, doctor's offices, office places, schools. Some schools are actually all nature schools where kids are totally immersed in, in the woods and in, in exploring ponds and streams. And I think we're seeing the blending now of this hybrid of nature and human built environment. And that can only be good. That can only be great. Yeah. You see great parks, the high, you know, the High Line in New York. You see places where you're just trying to make sure that we have that nature pill all the time um, that keeps us grounded, right? Physically grounded in the earth. Yeah. Um, slightly switching gears, moving into like our current space with AI, and I think about the ways that AI could take over forms of creativity because it's sort of doing tasks for us um, or also how AI could almost make like specific art prescriptions for you as well. I've always talked about like, oh, you know, you wake up in the morning and the AI will sense through your little band or watch what you need. And it's like, I wrote you a hundred songs and you're going to like them and uh, go to it. Uh, but at the same time, even just with chat GPT right now, like, it's less and less, like, just like writing, right? Writing is becoming less of a skill because it's becoming automated. And so what, what are your thoughts about how AI might influence neuroesthetics? Well, you know, I think I'm hoping it makes us more creative. It may be hard to see that right now we're seeing it as, oh, it's doing that work for us. But I think it, it over time will reveal itself that there is a huge role that we are still going to be playing in it. So yeah. I'll give you an example. For example, in design, um, if you're designing a chair, you know you can put in now to the computer different weight loads and different criteria, and it'll spit out 150 designs of a chair. But then the human person comes in with a pencil and brings the poetry to it and kind of um, shapes and plays with the foundation that the AI has um, given you. Right. So I'm hoping that where we land is just like we've been creative with this machine called the internet, like what we're doing with it now, that even though we may not see it, because this is just starting, I have faith that it's here to make us uh, more creative in some way. So we've got to look at it as not taking our job away from us, but in some way it's going to allow us to do something that only the human can do along with it. I'd add that, you know, 20 years ago, advances in technology really enabled us to 
get inside our heads and to see what's going on inside our heads. And that has been really phenomenal to really understand the arts, for example, but also to understand a lot of neurological differences and diseases and to help us heal. And I think there's an ethics and a, and a value to how we use technology in honor of humanity, not to supplant humanity. And so like AI can be very helpful in putting in criteria and helping to helping to maybe serve up, I think, you know, things like Spotify or other kinds of um, programs, you know, make recommendations based on algorithms. And, and that can be helpful. But I think agency, personal human agency is really important. And if we abdicate that, um, that's on us. Right. And so I think it's the same thing about what you said earlier, where we're told what we like and what we think and what we don't like. And I think we still have to come back into our humanness to make those decisions. And, and, you know, it's a, it's a long road. Um, but I think there are a lot of, it, it's, it's yes. And right. I think it's, it's either it's both not yes. One or the other. Yeah. And the example you gave, I've often thought about where, you know, we have now sensors in in watches and Fitbits that measure all kinds of things. And we're going to be able to tell where our body is at, our physiology, and if it could automatically serve you the frequency or the sound, not just give you the information, but give you some um, remedy, why right. not? You know. Well, what was the 40 hertz oscillations for Alzheimer's disease? Is, 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 do you know where that's ended up? Or I thought yeah, that was kind just, of interesting. Very that's interesting. very, very low frequency. It's very low. And um, uh, this is work that's being done at MIT, uh, and it's 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 light and sound, and there's always been a lot of question about um, hertz and frequency. And what this study has shown, and now there's been some human subject work with really positive results, showing that at that frequency, um, and also with different types of light, um, there is. Um, uh, real impact on amyloid and on the sort of tangles that create Alzheimer's to really kind of obliterate them. And so this idea that light and sound could actually, um, and I'm going to use this word and it's a big one, cure Alzheimer's is extraordinary. Um, the jury's still out, but the data is very, very promising. And a lot of researchers are starting to get behind um, looking at this more carefully. You know, the Hertz is an interesting thing, right? You know, it's, 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 it's really trial and error that's gotten the researcher to that particular place. Um, but I think following that data is important. It's so crazy because 40 Hertz, that's like sub, sub kick drum. That's like bass heads. I'm just thinking like, it's like <laughs> did the bass heads at the festivals have it right all along. They're like, no, it's healing me, man. You just got to like yeah. get really close to the subwoofers. And <laughs> it's like, artists have always known. Artists have always known. It's just the so scientists crazy. are catching up. Right. Yeah. I went to a techno show in Iceland once and really heavy duty, uh, industrial techno it's on these function one sound systems where it's designed for those systems. And when you actually experience it, like there's barely any music there. It's just sort of a pulsing bass wave. And I I could maybe faintly hear a a hi-hat somewhere in there. And I suddenly realized like, oh, this is a physical experience meant for this sound system. No wonder it's not fun to just listen to like on a regular speaker system or on headphones because that's not what it's for. Mm-hmm. And there was these people were just tapping into the bass and how it feels in a room, like collectively. That's it, and it's like yeah. it's it's just like a, we do that for an hour and you just get into a trance. Yeah, I was at the Rubin. Yet, oh, ahead, sorry, I was at the Rubin Museum in New York yesterday, and they have this huge mandala that's resin, and it's different layers of a resin mandala, and every ten seconds there's a sort of a breathe in and a breathe out of light. It's only light. It's not even sound. And what they have seen is that people coming in in a group start to breathe 10 seconds in, 10 seconds out. And there's a unison of community. So it goes from the individual to collective just by watching the light come in 10 seconds in and out, which is extraordinary, really extraordinary. Well, you know, there's all these indications that people are, wanting to get into these coherent states and wanting to feel things differently. I know that they are building, I think it's Madison Square Garden, these big 
um, circular amphitheaters, domes, that they're having transducers under every single seat so that you could feel the music, not just hear it, but feel it. Now, for yeah. a mainstream venue like Madison Square Garden to do that. I love it. Yeah. No, I think it's fantastic. But yeah. to your point, we're starting to understand what sound and sound waves and frequency and, you know, because we're, we're part of that whole ecosystem. Um, we're just frequency and, and atoms vibrating as well. So when you find um, certain resonances, you can change our, your physiology. So all of our instincts of going to certain concerts or even, um, yeah, there, there was something there. We knew. I mean, I think Susan and I always laugh and say, you know, actually the world is more simple than we think. We've just complicated yeah. it, you know? And, well, and, and, yeah. I was going to say that, I mean, the, everything we're talking about, you, you asked the earlier question, like, like neurosthetics, what does it really mean? And I think that we can understand how these things work and translate them into very useful practices that are ubiquitous, that are sensors underneath of seats or a certain kind of light when you wake up in the morning or just being aware of your textures and scents and sounds in your life. And that becomes part of your everyday. I think that's really the goal of this whole field. And Would to you have say, is, are these practical it. things you'd mentioned to people? Is it is part of it just about savoring and paying attention? I mean, what what are some things that maybe can bring the benefits into your own life besides like the studies and inventions, the things we're talking about? Well, you know, just go ahead, Susan. No, go ahead. No, I mean, just doing like we were saying, drawing for twenty minutes it's or like anything. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and practicing these, any of these arts or going to theater, you know, expressing yourself when you have a feeling, um, getting out a paintbrush and just splashing color on a canvas. So, I mean, um, paying attention to your environment, um, like, for example, after a space for being, people came out and said, did I get it right? Which is the right room? And we're like, mm -hmm. oh my God, it's what's right for you. But, you know, you know, when you feel... I always create, and it's not about money. It's about having agency over what you put around you, the objects, the, the colors, the how high is the ceiling, how much light comes in. I mean, these are all things that affect our mental health and our physical health. I mean, in the old days, architects had to be doctors and psychiatrists as well as architects because they understood how moving through space affects our bodies. So it is, it's funny when Susan and I were talking about aesthetic mindset, we said, is this just a different way to say being present? And, you know, in some ways it's paying attention to all the sensory systems, but then it's also the act of either actively listening to music, going to the theater, the act of painting or dancing or singing or banging on a drum. So it's, it's not just passive. It is mm -hmm. also active, but you have to be aware first and believe, and that's what the reason for writing the book was just to bring this to people's awareness that now neuroscience is proving what some of us instinctively have known yeah. for a while yeah. and then get people to, to what you opened up with almost this idea. We make us very happy if people started saying, Oh, I did 20 minutes on my treadmill and then 20 minutes of um, drawing with crayons. I don't know what I was doing, but I just did it. And, there's some statistics. What is it? Forty-five minutes uh, a month. You'll live ten years longer. <laughs> yeah, one at one art one art activity every couple months increases your lifespan dramatically. What? Um, and there, I think that, yeah, and I think this is an epidemiology work that's been done at University of College London um, that really shows some really interesting when you event, when you um, when you look at variables, all variables, there is a huge sort of noise and signal. Um, when you think about the role of an art experience um, as a maker or a beholder for living longer and, and living better. And I think, I think we're seeing that, you know, there's lots of different ways of knowing. So Ivy mentioned some of the neuroscience. There's also great public health work that that's happening that begins to start to layer in outcomes. Like what are the outcomes that are really happening to folks that are using art or, and I think art can be a, such a big word. You know, Ivy mentioned doodling, humming, 
Um, I've talked about some handcrafts, collage, pretty low hanging fruit, you know, being able to write down your thoughts, um, working with clay. We know working with clay, both hands work at, in the same way, which doesn't matter whether you're left-handed or right-handed. And, you know, these are the kinds of things that when you start to sort of lift those up, um, what kind of lights are you, you're using in your, um, in your, in your lamps? Um, you know, what are the things that you're really kind of bringing yourself to make, make a really big, a really big difference. Hmm. Uh, Does it, do you think it matters if you're challenged by art? Does that make it better? Like in a sense, it's like good taste valuable (laughs) or is it, does it not seem to matter so much? You know, I have so we work with the World Health Organization, and um, uh, Christopher Bailey is the head of the World Health Organization's art lead, and he is losing his vision. And what he has said is that some of the most difficult things that he's had to experience in losing his his sight um, have been um, not not about beauty, but about pain. And so losing his ability to see things, yet gaining his ability to hear better. And I think that sometimes we think it's all beauty and positive, but sometimes painful experiences in listening to a really sad piece of music or, mm-hmm. um, or, or looking at a piece of art that's very challenging can help us come to terms or understand or, or experience something. And so I, I think it's important to, to say that it's not all about feeling happy. It may be about processing something that's very, very painful or letting something, getting unstuck in something. Um, Ivy was talking about these, this idea around um, enriched environments and spaces. And whatever your enriched environment is, wh- wherever that is, um, there was some really interesting work done in the 60s by a woman named Marion Diamond, who started to look at structural changes in the brain based on enriched environments. And as Ivy said, it doesn't have to be expensive things, but environments that you feel comfortable and challenged and maybe there's novelty and surprise in the spaces and sort of a sense of, of, of safety, but exploration. And then spaces where you had nothing, very deprived spaces and then kind of spaces in between. And what she saw after only eight weeks was that people who were in these enriched environments, brain mass grew by 6% in a, mm. in a very short period of time. And I think just thinking about enriched environments, you can translate that into any part of your life, you know, where you live, where you work, where you play. So putting yourself in those spaces also, I think, makes a huge difference. Um, and to your point about, I don't think it's about having good taste in art. It's what art do you find salient, which means you connect with it at a deep level. Like if you walk into my house, it's funny. Friends of mine go, oh, my God, this place feels like you. And I've chosen things because there's something about looking at some of these. And I can't even explain it, but it feels good to me and it feels like me. And so as Susan has, has taught me, you know, our brains are like our fingerprints. Each one is different. So this idea that we surround ourselves with meaningful things or things that, and it could be things that make us challenged or make us sad or make, Mm -hmm. but it's not about good judgment or is it, uh, do I have good taste? It's my taste. It's like what resonates with me. Like I never buy a piece of art because I think it's going to be a value. It's like, there's something in that, that I feel so deeply connected to. I don't know what it is, but I want that in my space. Yeah. Well, last question relating to that, because I know we have a hard out here coming up. Um, So do you think, though, having your own sense of taste and art and creativity in general, uh, it can somehow be a depolarizer? It can bring people together who feel they are not connected? Like, are there ways that maybe over time we've started to see like certain kinds of art or creativity might bring disparate groups together? Oh, I think, yeah, tribes are forming over like-minded interests. I mean, you know, around music, art. I mean, we're, we're I'm seeing more people getting together and doing some of these art activities or singing, or I think it has, a, it brings communities uh, together. But certainly in the work that you do, I mean, you see what's happening. I think people are naturally, without even understanding why, 
being driven to connect with like-minded people um, to be or more of themselves. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, think about when Notre Dame was burning and people just started spontaneously singing together in a really horrible, you know, thing. I mean, people came together and um, there's something called social prescribing. I don't know if you've heard of this. We talked a little mm-hmm. bit about it in the book where um, physicians and social workers, um, therapists uh, so are prescribing, literally prescribing museum visits or uh outings in the park, uh, or, or other ways of connecting, you know, loneliness and isolation in the world is on the rise. Even though we have all these technological ways to connect, people are really lonely. And we're seeing that through this idea of social prescribing, getting people into spaces, um, simple and more complex, they're starting to feel more connected to each other. And that's also intergenerational. So, you know, we, we've seen college students going into assisted living programs and doing um, art activities as simple as singing with older folks to help them feel, the young people and the older people to feel more connected. And I think we're going to start seeing more and more of that. Um, yeah. And especially as policies start to change, right? Like reimbursements for the arts is very low. You know, we don't put a lot of money into research of the arts or actually paying for the folks, the practitioners that are providing some of this conduit and some of this experience. And that, that's something that is starting to change. And I think in the next five years or so, we're going to start to see more of that public and private funding. There is that layer of when you give creativity, it does add in a special juice that seems to give even more benefits to you. That's why I feel so grateful to like have the excuse to be able to do it as a job, but then I am giving it all the time. It's it's so nourishing for me, and I think I learned the hard way that the only thing that keeps my head on straight is is creativity. Like just playing to like this morning, I was I've been feeling kind of stressed, and it's been a tough time the past holidays. And I was like, I need to just do something creative in the morning first thing. You just play piano. It doesn't yep. matter. Just just play some piano for, and I did. I felt a lot better Beautiful. after it. Just fifteen minutes of piano. Yeah. So. Wow. Yeah, I think the world would be a better place if everyone just carved out that 15 minutes yeah, and picked something to do that uh, let them express themselves. Well, thank you so much. It's such an honor to talk to you both and great to see you both again. The book's Your Brain on Art and it's a lot of fun. And so it's just such a great subject. Thank you. No, thank you, def- you. you definitely get it. You're living it. And thank you for being an example of it. <laughs> uh, I mean, we all are, right? We're all, we really are. It's, this is truly not like something just for, quote unquote, certain people. or It's really anyone. It's so many doorways and it's such an easy thing. And this is really just like putting all together like so many reasons why you might want to just play around. Basically. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you See you later. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Ivy and Susan, for coming on the show. I love that conversation. Check out their book, Your Brain on Art. It's out now. Um, lots and lots of deep nuggets in there, and the link to it is in the show notes. This song that you hear in the background is called Slon, and it is the last track on the new Burren album with Peter Broderick and myself. That album is out in full wherever you listen to music, and so is the vinyl pre-order Uh, Vinyl will be shipping this summer, but you can pre-order the uh, limited edition Color Earth version as well as the heavyweight black vinyl, uh, eastforce.org for that. Thanks again to our council on Patreon, patreon.com slash eastforest. You guys are awesome. We've been having some, some awesome gatherings on Patreon and being able to share some really, you know, deep cuts and demos and things like that. Okay, until next time, you guys keep walking your walk. Don't take any shit, but if you do, do it with grace. <laughs>